Legend has it that Pancho Villa's last words were, don't let it in like this, tell them I said something. That even made it into the lyric of a Tom Russell song. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think he had any time for last words as nine rifle slugs slammed into him as he sat behind the wheel of his 1919 Dodge Roadster on a dusty street in Peral, Mexico. They also say that he reached for his pistol as he died. Now that, I believe. Via's secretary, Colonel Miguel Trio, tried to climb out through the passenger door, but he fell draped over the side of the vehicle, riddled with lead and as dead as his boss. Via's personal assistant, Daniel Tamayo, died in the back seat as bullets tore through the Dodge. A couple of bodyguards fell on the street, toppled from the Dodge's running boards in the storm of rifle fire. One released a bodyguard, Ramon Contreras, ran from the scene to a nearby river, pursued by the assassins. Wounded in the gut, he turned on his pursuers, pulled his pistol and shot one of the killers, and then staggered away. He would be the lone survivor of the Via hit. The assassins didn't hunt too hard for him. Their work was done. The target terminated. The centaur of the north, survivor of a career as a bandit in the Sierra and of a hundred savage battles of the Mexican Revolution, was dead at age 45. Enaral Francisco Villa had surrendered to the federal government of Mexico in 1920 after ten long years of brutal war. He'd risen from a guerrilla leader to a commanding general of the most powerful army in the Western Hemisphere. A series of crushing defeats in 1915 had reduced him back to the status of a guerrilla chief. In 1916, he raided the U.S. border town of Columbus, New Mexico, and then evaded the American cavalry sent to run him down. Between 1916 and 1920, he terrorized northern Mexico, occasionally capturing a major city for a time before having to give it back up to federal troops. Those troops chased him across the mountains in the desert where the eagle makes his nest, and they could never catch him. But the revolution was winding down. With his hated rival, Venustiano Carranza, dead, and his nemesis, General Alvaro Obregón, who had defeated him in the massive battles of Celaya and León in 1915, apparently retired, Villa decided it was time to hang up his spurs. In exchange for Villa giving up his struggle, the government of interim president Adolfo de la Huerta granted him a hacienda called Canatillo in the state of Durango. They wanted him away from his power base in, in Chihuahua. And they allowed him to keep a small army there for his personal protection. This suited Villa. He was a born warrior, of course, but he also had a streak of, of the farmer in him. And his ideal social structure, as he expressed from the very beginning of the revolution, was to create military colonies where 
the people would live and prosper, they would train for military action for three days a week and farm for three days a week. And this would create a people's army that was capable of overthrowing any tyrant that uh, happened to arise or to repel foreign invaders. And uh, it would give them pride and a sense of purpose and, and social cohesion. And then they would work the land for three days a week and um, apply progressive new agriculture techniques and, and use modern machinery. And this may not have been an entirely practical means of social organization, at least not on a, on a large scale, but it was Pancho Villa's dream, and he was able to enact it in great measure at Canateo. For three years, Villa lived the life of a progressive hacendado. He established his modern agricultural practices, and he sent kids to school, which was a very major passion of his. And he played a lot of pelota, which was something like racquetball played with a wooden paddle. And in one instance, a, uh, a visitor who played pelota with him smacked the this hard rubber ball and hit Via right in the ass. And anybody who's played racquetball knows that, uh, that that can happen. You know, your opponent steps in front of you and you, you smack him and it hurts. And this poor man was terrified. You know, he had just raised a nice welt on the ass of a very dangerous revolutionary and one of Mexico's great gunfighters. And Villa laughed it off and said, you know, don't worry, this is a game for strong men. So Villa was having a good time. He was enjoying the fruits of a peaceful life. He still carried a gun with him wherever he went, but that was probably mostly just force of habit. His relationship with the government and with Oberon, who had since been elected president of Mexico, were cordial. At least they seemed to be. Obregón sent Villa a pair of machine guns as a gift. And what says friendship more than a pair of machine guns? In the early 20s, it seemed to Pancho Villa that the biggest stress in his life was dealing with multiple wives and mistresses. But there was always a looming possibility that some of Villa's many enemies might take a shot at revenge for some wartime killing or out of the rivalry that poisoned the revolution from the very start. For example, there's Jesus Herrera, one of the last surviving male members of the Herrera clan. The Herreras had once been Villistas, although they had always been competitive with their jefe. When they went over to Carranza as the revolution fell into this very nasty civil war, Villa swore to exterminate them, and he very nearly did. Betrayal always brought out the savage in Pancho Villa. And if this seems very similar to cartel rivalries in, in modern Mexico, uh, I think that that's an accurate depiction. Um, 
family rivalries got tied up with uh, political and economic rivalries and led to bitter feuds that, that led to gunplay. Jesus Herrera allegedly paid more than one hitman to kill Villa during his retirement. But remember, Villa had a large contingent of loyal and hard-bitten, combat-tested bodyguards who made that a, a losing, losing proposition, a life-losing proposition. Two of Villa's men were arrested in turn for plotting to kill Herrera, although Villa loudly proclaimed that they were innocent. The men feuded vociferously in the press, back and forth, and Villa actually sent communications to President Obregón um, telling him that he needed to rein in Herrera. But though the feud with Herrera was dangerous, it's pretty certain that the Villa hit was actually a conspiracy that involved the highest echelons of the Mexican federal government. As time went on, Villa started talking to journalists and weighing in on the political situation in Mexico. And that's something that the government wasn't going to tolerate. Given his enduring popularity with the people and his record of militant action, he made the people in power nervous. Now, Villa always insisted, just as he always had, that he had no personal political ambitions. However, he did make allusions to his support of De La Huerta, the man who had taken his surrender. And this did not please Plutarco Elias Caius, the interior minister, who was the man that Oberon had handpicked to be his successor as president. As we mentioned in the very first podcast in this series, Mexico, whether it was under the Porfiriato or ultimately under the uh, the one-party rule that uh, came after the revolution, was the kind of democracy that Vladimir Putin would understand. Another enemy in government was the Minister of War, General Joaquin Amaro, who had chased and fought Villa from 1916 to 20 when Villa was a guerrilla raider in Chihuahua. Amaro had never accepted the idea of amnesty for Villa, and he really wanted to see his old enemy's head on a platter. When a politician named Jesus Salas Barraza, whose personal hatred for Villa dated back to the revolution, pitched the officials on an assassination plot, for an appropriate financial consideration. All of these officials were more than willing to see it done. It's also possible that Caius and Amaro recruited Barraza. That's not certain. It's a, there's murky aspects to this. Obregón was almost certainly in on the plot, or at least aware of it, and chose to turn his head away as long as his government was not implicated. It's pretty evident that there was a conspiracy of those in authority, and you can tell by the fact that the commander of the military garrison of Peral, Colonel Felix Lara, took his troops out of the city on the day of the assassination, 
to practice for a parade that was a couple of months away. There was no reason for them to leave town. And they did. So that's pretty strong evidence that, that the conspiracy went uh, high up into the government. So Barraza and this six-man hit squad he recruited had a free hand as they set up their ambush on July 20th, 1923, along an arching curve on a city street in Peral. Villa had left his fortified estate at Canutillo to become the godfather, literally. Many of his former soldiers asked him to be godfather to their children, and Villa was only happy to play that kind of role. He was a, a patron, and he loved it. He liked being the man. And his secretary, Trio, convinced him that traveling with a full escort of 50 Dorados, which is what uh, his personal bodyguard had always been called, the Golden Ones, traveling with that many people was cost prohibitive, and Trio was keeping an eye on the books. And besides that, uh, Pancho loved to drive his automobile. So Via and a very small party traveled to the village of Rio, Florida, and partied for a couple of days. And uh, although Via did not drink, he loved to dance and he loved to party. Via visited with one of his former wives there. Visited. They headed back through Peral on their way home to Canateo on the morning of July 20th in high spirits. And Pancho was behind the wheel navigating this beloved Dodge Roadster to the intersection of Benito Juarez and Gabino Barrera. There was a pumpkin seed vendor on the street, and he raised his hand in, in a salute and yelled out, Viva Villa! That had been a war cry all across Mexico for a decade. This time, it was a signal of death. As the car swung through a gentle curve, rifles poked out of an apartment building along the street, and a fusillade erupted, just a storm of lead. The Dodge was riddled with something like 40 shots. After seeing to it that Villa was dead, he was slumped over in the driver's seat with his guts blown out, his killers just casually rode on out of town. And Colonel Lara, when he returned from his parade training, said he couldn't mount a pursuit when he got to Peral because he couldn't find any horses. How very frustrating. He also received a 50,000 peso payoff from the government and was promoted to general. Payment for services rendered. Everybody assumed, of course, that the government had Poncho whacked. The Dorados back at Canatillo were ready to go to war to avenge their jefe, and Oberon actually sent an army unit to the Hacienda to make sure that that didn't happen. And there was a very tense three-day standoff, which simmered down after Poncho's brother, Hippolito, showed up and assured the government that everything was cool. Hippolito was no dummy, and he knew a losing hand when he held one. Overgone did nothing for a month to apprehend any of Villa's killers. 
And finally, under pressure, Barraza confessed to the killing. He took sole responsibility for it, saying that he had acted simply to rid the world of a monster. And that was plausible enough for many in Mexico, then and now. That's what Villa was. But most importantly, he made it clear that the government had nothing to do with it. Of course not. Barraza got a stiff sentence. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He served three months and was pardoned. Nobody else did any time at all. You might say the fix was in. Villa was buried in Peral, but it was a very unquiet grave. In 1926, someone broke into his tomb and stole his head, which is the premise for an outstanding pulp adventure novel by Craig MacDonald titled Head Games, which includes all kinds of, of Easter eggs for Tom Russell fans, uh, a cameo appearance by Marlena Dietrich, Orson Welles, and of course, the head of Pancho Villa. The prime suspect in the theft of Villa's head was an American soldier of fortune named Emil Holmdahl, though nobody knows for sure what he wanted it for. Money, obviously, but whose money? Some say the skull ended up as an ashtray on Obregón's or Caius's desk, which is a macabre but understandable uh, use for an enemy's skull, I suppose. Or maybe it ended up as a relic of the Skull and Bones fraternity at Yale. George H.W. Bush, John Kerry, George W. Bush, they were members. Skull and Bones denies having Pancho Villa's head. But hey, if you could prove it, they'll give it back, um, which is an interesting way of approaching things. So, in, in somewhat fitting a manner for a figure who is so larger than life, a figure of, of legend, both uh, dark and light, uh, you end up with this very folkloric sort of end to a lurid and violent career of General Francisco Villa. He went down in gun smoke and blood on the street of a Mexican city. It was really the only way he could go down. It was the kind of death that has become all too familiar in a troubled nation that has never really completely recovered from the storm of La Revolución. Next up, we'll take a deep dive into the career of Emiliano Zapata, who is often thought of in somewhat the same breath with Pancho Villa, uh, picturesque, sombrero-wearing, mustachioed revolutionary. They were very, very different men, and uh, their goals for the revolution were congruent but not the same, and Zapata's circumstances being in a very small landlocked state 
in southern Mexico were very different from Villa's. And uh, Zapata's revolutionary fight uh, was somewhat unique and uh, quite different from from Villa's. So uh, he really shouldn't be thought of um, as just Villa's counterpoint or counterpart, rather, in the South. He, uh, he had a unique revolutionary experience and, and course, although it ended up also with his death. Um, it's been very interesting to delve deeply into Zapata's story. I was much, much more familiar with Villa's story than, than uh, with Zapata's, and it has been very interesting to delve deeply and seriously into the revolution in, in the state of Morelos and the evolution of Zapatismo, which has actually had, uh, had legs. Um, it has, uh, Zapatismo has been adopted as a creed and an ideology as recently as the 1990s, and uh, effectively it, it still exists as an active ideology, which is something you can't really say about Virismo, um, for example. Zapata's story is a remarkable one. I expect it to come in uh, multiple episodes and uh, really eager to get those out in front of y'all. I'd like to welcome our new uh, scout class patron on the Patreon page, John Sweet. The patrons make it possible to sustain the Frontier Parsons podcast and blog, and support is greatly appreciated. So uh, welcome to John Sweet. Also want to thank Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. So uh, if you uh, wish to become a patron and, and uh, help keep this electronic campfire going, uh, the links to the Patreon page are in the show notes, and we'll see you down the trail.